Hey, welcome to the show. This is John. What could raising a child with special needs and coping with an avocado-sized tumor have to do with the skills organizations need to thrive? Our guest today is resilience expert Anne Grady, an internationally recognized speaker and author of three books on resilience. Her new book, Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience, will be available in the fall. Learn more at www.angradygroup.com. Hello, Anne. Hi, how are you, John? Good, Anne. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm wonderful. Am I supposed to see you on video as well? No, I, I haven't been able to work that out yet, so I just, we do the audio. Perfect. Well, I, I even put on makeup, John. Oh, well, you didn't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, how are you this fine oh, time? I, oh, this crazy time. It's hanging in there. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the whole uh, state of the world right now is, um, I know it's not just me that it's weighing down on it, so. Oh, but how about you? Same, really. Like, you know, I'm a, as a speaker, um, business has certainly shifted. We've gone from lots of onstage keynotes to virtual keynotes and lots of virtual training. Um, uh -huh. My daughter is a senior in high school, so her that kind of fizzled her graduation. And my son, Evan, oh, man. Yeah. who we'll talk about, um, is having a tough time in Idaho. He, he actually gets to come home for the first time since February in a couple weeks. So... He's looking forward. To oh, oh, I bet. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can, I, I'd really just want to hear um, about your story and hear about your son too. Cause I know I read that he has bipolar disorder too with autism. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd really love to hear, just kind of take me from the beginning if you will. Cause um, I mean, for me, I have bipolar disorder, of course, with the, you know, the bipolar battle. And I, um, when I was growing up and as I was younger, I was always told that doctors couldn't diagnose me with anything until after, you know, I was out of my teenage years. So I, I want to hear your story about your son and what you found and what happened. Sure. So I guess starting at the beginning, I knew something wasn't right when I was pregnant. So Evan would kick so hard that I would literally drop to the ground. And my doctor joked that he was going to be a soccer player. And then, oh, yeah. And then when he was born, the nurse came into the room. So I went into preterm labor like three months early. I got put on bed rest. And then when it came time to deliver, they had to induce me because he wouldn't you know, he wouldn't come out. And so then we had an emergency C-section. So already they were like, this baby's going to be stubborn. Um, and mm -hmm. then the nurse joked, you know, when she brought him into the room, like I've never met a baby this angry before, which, you know, oh. always what a first time mom wants to hear. He just, yeah, <laughs> he cried constantly, constantly. And, and, you know, we went to multiple pediatricians and nobody could tell us what was wrong. And um, so, you know, around the age of, 11 months old, I was like, you know, I was speaking a lot and doing a lot of training. And one of my clients was early hood intervention for children. 
and I was just talking about what was going on because I was really trying to get suggestions or help or resources. I didn't know what I didn't know. And they said, you know, we have a whole program for kiddos between zero and three years old. You should get them involved in that. So Evan started therapy at 11 months old, and he has been in some form of therapy ever since. And he turned 17 in April. Um, so when he was 18 months old, my husband left because he just cried constantly. And it was, you know, 95% of all marriages that have a child with special needs end in divorce. And ours was no exception. And so I was like a single mom and I was trying to raise Evan and build a consulting career. And he, at the age of three, tried to kill me with a pair of scissors. Oh, wow. So, Oh my goodness. Like when he was when he was two, I brought him to a psychiatrist and he said he's definitely an explosive child. It's a matter of when, not if you're gonna need to hospitalize him. And I oh, okay. and it like he didn't give him a diagnosis, he just said he's an explosive child. So that was like soul crushing. And then when he was three, he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors because I wouldn't give him more ice cream. And then when he was four, I took him to his first neurologist and they put him on uh, his first antipsychotic. We still didn't have mm -hmm. a diagnosis. Uh, nobody could really put their finger on what was wrong. So I was going to every kind of specialist you can imagine, nutritionist, functional medicine, neuropsychologist, psychiatrist. We did EEGs. We did QEEGs. You know, I mean, this child was, I mean, I was taking him or, to anybody I could find to help me figure out what was uh -huh. wrong and still couldn't figure it out. And so he just kept escalating. I met my current husband when Evan was uh, four years old, almost five. He was about, he, yeah, it was like a day before he turned five. So when he was five years old, I met my husband and, you know, I let him know. I'm like, hey, uh, my kiddo is challenging. I don't have a diagnosis, but something's definitely not right. He has a daughter who's a year older. So we blended our families um, when Evan was seven years old. So Evan was hospitalized for the first time when he was seven um, at the pediatric psych hospital in Dallas, Texas. And we, Jay and I, my husband and I lived at the Ronald McDonald house for two months while he underwent inpatient psychiatric treatment. And then okay. think, when we were there, they said, you know, it's really hard to diagnose a child, but we're fairly confident that this is bipolar disorder, except the um, swings he's having micro uh, in, instead of having these like big dips and then highs, it was happening at a micro level multiple times throughout the day. So it, oh, okay. so it wasn't like he would be, you know, manic for a week and then depressed for a week, he would go through mania and depression and the depression took the form of irritability. So he would go through mm -hmm. mania and irritability constantly. You wouldn't know which was going to come next or they, they came together. Um, and then when he was 10, he continued to escalate and we were just not safe and he was not safe. And so he had to go to a residential treatment program um, which had a hospital component to it. And there they, you know, diagnosed him with a, 
I don't even remember what the name of it was, but most neurologists won't even acknowledge it. They said he had like electrical misfirings in his brain. And so they did a QEEG and they showed, they called it a seizure disorder, but no neurologist agreed with that. They all thought, and, and since then I've been told that they give that same diagnosis to everybody. Um, so oh, he was God. there and it helped for a short time and he was there for two months. And then he came home and just, I was diagnosed, I guess, right. So I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 19. Um, and just to have mm -hmm. that as backstory, but then, you know, when Evan came home, uh, from his second hospitalization, I was diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland <clears throat> and it resulted in facial paralysis, which resulted in a scratched cornea and eye surgery and oh, six geez. weeks of radiation. But in the middle of it, I lost my balance because I had no depth perception because I couldn't, you know, had a patch on my eye and I fell down a flight of stairs uh -huh. and broke my foot in four places. Oh my gosh. Scary. Ann. So, <laughs> um, Evan, you know, continued to struggle. He went to a school for kids with emotional disturbances and behavior challenges. Um, and when he was 15, we just knew that if we didn't do something drastic, um, the trajectory that he was on was not going to be helpful for him. So we made this gut wrenching decision to place him at a therapeutic boarding school. And we hired someone to help us find the right program. And, and she came back and said, here are three, three programs. You know, she talked to Evan's therapists and doctors and us and his teachers. And based on that information, she came back with three programs. We chose one of them. He's been there now for two years. Um, almost, well, it'll be two years in exactly one month. Um, and okay. we're hoping that he can graduate high school there because it's really good for him and he's making progress. But since he's, you know, been in therapy, he went from having a diagnosis from bipolar NOS to bipolar with oppositional defiant disorder to now it's bipolar with autism and sensory integration and oppositional defiant disorder and learning disabilities. It's like, he's got a perfect neurological storm in his brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. It, does, uh, I have a quick question for you. Did you say, or could you kind of talk about the, you said the past two years he's been in that, the therapeutic uh, boarding facility. Is that, have you noticed more gains since he's been there than you have like uh, when he was with you guys at home? Absolutely. Or... Absolutely. I mean, he, so okay. part of the reason we had him there, one, he was not safe here and we were not safe here. Uh, and our daughter was not safe. But two, we mm -hmm. needed to separate what was behavioral and what was biology. You know, what did he have control over through immersive therapy? And, you know, what did he, what is not going to change because his brain just isn't mm -hmm. capable of it. And he's still young, you know, you're, you have until your mid twenties for everything to kind of settle. Um, and even then you can still grow and change your brain. That's like the exciting thing about my new book. And it's just all about how you can retrain your brain. So it's very powerful, but, mm -hmm. um, that said, his frontal lobe has damage. And so, you know, right now we're finding out 
there are lots of things that he has improved. There are lots of things that he's capable of improving even more, but things like rigidity and emotional regulation and impulsivity, while he can get better at those things, they will always be a challenge. And he will always have to work hard to manage his moods. Okay. Is, is that, is this boarding school, is this something that's going to be like a permanent thing you think, or will he come back home or what is, what is kind of the future? What are you guys looking at for the future? With so that's them? part of the anxiety um, that we're experiencing because they're, you know, we're paying for this program out of pocket and we're incredibly blessed that we're able to afford it because most families could not. And so most families end mm -hmm. up in this situation where we were literally told that he would have to break the law and offend before he could get treatment that was paid for. Um, oh, wow. You know, an average oh, psychiatrist appointment is over $200 for 30 minutes. An average therapist appointment is $150 for 50 minutes. And we were told he needed to see a psychiatrist every two weeks and a therapist twice a week. Um, and so we were trying to manage all of that and we needed him to get like this consistent behavioral intervention from people who were trained, who cared about him. And so we found this amazing place. It's in Idaho in the middle of a 30 acre ranch on a river. He fishes every day. Um, oh, we cool. don't know what to do when he comes home because group homes for people with mental health issues are not ideal. And, you know, government subsidized housing for people with issues like this is not ideal. So we are hiring the person who found the Idaho program and we're trying to find a, a program that will help him transition into adulthood that can grow with him. So a community where he can have as much support is needed and would love for it to be obviously closer to our home in Austin, Texas, so that we can be near him. Um, the general consensus from his treatment team is that moving back home would cause failure to launch, that he would revert back to some old mm -hmm. behaviors and that it would be much harder from an inertia perspective to get him started again than it would yeah. be to keep him going. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. And um, you started to mention about your book coming up too and about changing your brain and your uh, your thought mm -hmm. process it, would that be is this is that a good sure. segue yeah, into that sure. right now I'm, or? I'm happy to yeah. share anything I can about Evan like my proud I am so proud of him because he has asked me to share his story because he thinks it will help people he wants to reduce the stigma I mean I have two books already and a portion of all of those proceeds go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in Central Texas um, I'm a huge yeah, oh, I'm a big cool. mental health advocate um, and ultimately would like mm -hmm. to advocate on a national level um, to increase services mm -hmm. and change legislation. But, it, you know, it's, it's a long road, but I feel like that's kind of why I've been put on this planet. So my, my first book was called 52 mm -hmm. Strategies for Life, Love and Work, and it's a strategy a week over the course of a year, giving you subtle, small, slight suggestions, tools, and strategies on ways to improve relationships, manage stress, um, focus on your goals, improve emotional intelligence, leverage your strengths, like a whole bunch of, of cool stuff. Um, my second book was based on my TED Talk, which was, uh, it's called Strong Enough, Choosing Courage, Resilience, and Triumph. 
And my new book coming out in October is called Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience. And I'm, I feel like I've been training to write this book for the last two decades. You know, raising Evan has been my mm -hmm. resilience building breeding ground. And you throw in a tumor in your face and all the mm -hmm. stuff that came as a result of that. And I, you know, I've had to learn to build resilience out of necessity. Um, and I'd love to save some people the struggle and help them build it without having to go through that. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's broken down into three parts. The first is your mindset and it's the stories that you tell yourself about yourself, your self-limiting beliefs, your cognitive habits, the way your brain works are what we don't often realize is that our brain is actually designed to work against us. So once we understand how our brain functions, we can make different choices in the moment and actually reshape it. The second part of the book is called The Skill Set, mm -hmm. and it's tools and specific strategies to make stress work for you, to focus on you know, gratitude, mindfulness, self-care, um, social connection, emotional intelligence, just lots of different tools for your toolbox. And then the third section is about resetting. Mm -hmm. It's choosing your perspective, focusing on what's truly important to you so that you can get out of reactivity and live purposefully. Because I find that most of us are so okay. busy trying to survive the life we're in, we forget to aim for the life we deserve. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, you, you know what? Um, is there, can you give me some examples sure. or like strategies, actionable things that, you know, people that are listening could implement today and start Absolutely. helping themselves? So there's something called um, experience dependent neuroplasticity. And what that means is the more you think and behave a certain way, the easier it is to think and behave that way. So if every day you go home after work and you have, you know, a bottle of wine and a pint of ice cream, not necessarily in that order, that becomes your habit pattern. And it just becomes really easy to do that. If you come home and put on jogging shoes and go for a walk or a run, and then you eat a salad and you do that enough times, that eventually becomes a habit too. And a habit is a cognitive shortcut. So one thing that you can do is... Okay identify the habits in your life that are serving you and the ones that are sabotaging you. Most people try to make huge change all at once. So for example, when I was going through a deep bout of depression, um, if I tried to start exercising, eating healthy, hanging out with friends, getting involved in my community, volunteering, practicing gratitude, being mindful, I, I would have gone back to sleep because I would have been so overwhelmed. So it's, picking one thing and doing that enough to where it starts to become a habit. You know, you can never erase the old habit. It can become muted, but it's never gone. You have to replace it with a different habit that's more productive. So one would be start paying attention to where you're living your life on autopilot and reacting rather than being deliberate. The other, oh, okay. sorry, go ahead. Would, oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. I have another question, but uh, well, finish up your thought first. <laughs> start paying attention to your negativity bias. So it's our brain has been designed not to keep us happy, but to keep us alive. 
And so our brain is always scanning the environment for threats. And that was wonderful with our ancestors, you know, a million years ago when they were trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers. But today we still do it and our brain can't differentiate between a real threat or a perceived threat. So it cannot tell the difference between a saber-toothed tiger or a snarky email from a colleague. And once you start understanding that we all have this predisposition toward negativity, you can change your brain and offset it by searching for the right things. So for example, let's say you're in a restaurant having a delicious meal and the fire alarm goes off. What do you remember about that dining experience? Well, most people remember the fire alarm instead of the meal. And if you, take time each day to mm -hmm. hone in on those, what I call delicious moments, those, that little bout of laughter or the thing that brought a smile to your face or the hug you got from a friend or the note you got that, you know, gave you good news. Any little thing, if you sit in that and savor it and really feel it for 15 to 20 seconds, you can embed that memory into your neural network just as powerfully as a negative memory the difference is negative memories are encoded immediately because your brain doesn't want you to have the same experience twice. So positive. Okay. Okay. Is, is that like a, is that like a, that a gratitude practice? Yeah, that's one that you would huge say way to change your brain. Um, it was actually the first thing I started with when I had facial paralysis. I was like, okay, what can I be grateful for? And I had a speech impediment and I saw my career flash before my eyes. And I was grateful that half of my face worked. I was grateful that my son was, you know, in a safe home. I, I was grateful that I had a support system. So the thing about gratitude is you don't even have to find anything to be grateful for. Just searching offsets your negativity bias, mm -hmm. decreases the stress hormone cortisol by 23% and increases serotonin and dopamine, which are in most antidepressants. So a gratitude practice is twofold. One, it's being on the lookout for good moments and good things and celebrating those. It's also communicating your appreciation and gratitude of others regularly because nobody goes home after work and says, damn it, if one more okay. person tells me I'm a good person or if one more person gives me a compliment, I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. Never said nobody ever. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, um, the question I was going to ask you before is, you know, uh, one of the things um, I do a lot of mental health advocacy online through social media and this podcast and my blog and all sorts of other platforms. And I get the, a lot of the same questions. And one of the ones people have um, an issue over is when they are in depression, whether it's bipolar depression or, you know, unipolar de depression is mm -hmm. trying to get going just to get, just to get some sort of energy, like just to move, you know, cause he, I mean, it, you dealing with depression, I'm sure have felt it like I have for sure being not able to get out of bed because you're so exhausted. And like you said before, just falling asleep when you have this whole list of things that you should or could be doing and you just don't have the motivation to do it. What, do you have any suggestions about how to kind of overcome that? So 
you can get back in exercising or walking or whatever it is that's important two, for self-care. Uh, the first is action trumps motivation. So if you wait to feel motivated, you won't do it. And most of the time, what we don't realize is that behavior leads to motivation. So even if you don't feel like it, mm, even if you're not okay. motivated to do it, it's doing it anyway, but it's not biting off more than you can chew. And so even if it's just p putting your feet on the ground one day, instead of in your bed and standing up and stretching and then going back to bed, right? It could be the subtle, tiny thing. Like okay. I started thinking of things I was grateful for after I brushed my teeth. It's called habit stacking. I brush my teeth twice a day. Every time I do it, I think about three things I'm grateful for. So you can take baby steps, but the goal of mind over moment is not to judge yourself or beat yourself up for feeling that way. Cause I know when I'm oh, sorry, I know when I'm depressed, <laughs> you can hear my, um, I know when I'm depressed, um, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by even the smallest things. And if you can have a small success, like today I stood up and I made myself a sandwich, right? Or I, you know, today I thought mm -hmm. about three things that I'm grateful for. Even the subtlest shifts make a change in your brain. And the goal of mindfulness, which is the, the underlying tenet of mind over moment, is not to judge the emotion. When I'm depressed, it's easy to beat myself up. Like, why am I feeling this way? I have so much to be grateful for. Why am I sad? I've got a roof over my head. I've got friends. I've got a husband. I've got kids. But there's no why. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason. And there's no good or bad emotion. And I think most of us are taught that when we feel an uncomfortable emotion, mm -hmm. we want to run from it. So if we feel anxiety, we want to do something to numb right. that and get away from it. If we feel sadness, we don't want to feel that. So we try to numb it or just go to sleep and make it go away. Mindfulness is starting to understand that your emotions and feelings are only there as information. They're only there to give your brain and body information, period we're the ones who assign the meaning to it. So if you feel mm -hmm. sad, rather than feeling mm -hmm. like I shouldn't feel this way, feel it, cry, be sad. It is okay to feel sad. We have to feel that. If you're feeling anxious, feel it, 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 it especially mm -hmm. in the world we're in right now. If you try not to feel it, you only, when you push away an emotion, it only serves to intensify the duration and, and the intensity, you know? It, it, it magnifies it. So okay. part of mindfulness is starting okay. to recognize where these emotions are popping up and where in your body you're feeling them. Because if you're paying attention to, I'm feeling sadness, my shoulders feel tight, my stomach feels heavy, I'm feeling tired. When you're doing that, you are not worrying about the past and you are not anxious about the future. You're focusing in this moment on the present. And that's what they never teach you in school. Every single emotion serves a purpose. Every single emotion is built to protect you. And every single emotion has to be felt. Mm -hmm. Now, people who have a mood disorder have a more active limbic system. So the emotional threat center of their brain is typically more sensitive. 
And it means that going from the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex, your logical part of your brain, the communication between that and the emotional part of your brain sometimes, you know, gets disjointed. It's about recognizing when it's happening and mm -hmm. sitting in it and not trying to change it. And I know that is so hard to do, but that's really the basis of it. If you, you know, your, your example about, you know, when you're exhausted and you're like, you feel all achy and weak and tired and sleepy. I mean, would you suggest like in that moment, okay, well, I am tired. I am sleepy. I should just lay down and go to sleep then. Or should I, you know, try to change and do, get up and go yes, for a walk both. or something like right. that? So it's acknowledging I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling sleepy. Okay. I'm feeling achy. Right. This is I, I, I feel this way. It's very real. I'm not trying to judge it or do anything with it. I'm just acknowledging it. I feel it all over my body. You know, get real specific what you're feeling and where you're feeling it, because that's part of being in the present moment. And and then I use something called an if then scenario. If I wake up and I'm feeling tired and overwhelmed or if something happens and I want to crawl back into bed, then I will give myself 30 minutes and then take a walk. So it could be you give yourself permission to have the time and the space, but we have to stop shooting on ourselves. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. There is no playbook. You should be right where you are doing exactly what you're doing if you're trying to focus on becoming mentally healthy. And there's a difference between mental illness and mental health. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that okay. just brings up another uh, question I have for you too. Uh, what are some strategies that you use or you talk to people about using to help manage stress, especially right now during, you know, this, the whole environment of our world with the COVID and, you know, mm -hmm. the country with, the riots and so forth, what, well, what would you suggest? First, I would say stress can be a very powerful motivator. Um, we assign the meaning that stress is bad, but they've actually done research. Uh, they did a study with 30,000 people and they, they tracked them over eight years and they asked them two questions at the beginning of the study. First, uh, what level of stress have you experienced in the past year, low, moderate or high? And do you think stress is bad for you? And after eight years of tracking this using death records and mortality rates, they found that for people who had high levels of stress in the previous year, there was a 43% increased risk of dying prematurely. But the fascinating part of the study was it was only for the people who perceived stress was bad for them. The people, the people who had high levels of stress but perceived oh, stress wow. was just their body preparing them for action, like the increased heart rate was there to just get pump more blood and oxygen into your brain and the tightness in your stomach was there helping you brace yourself and putting on armor to deal with what was ahead. Those people had a 0% increased risk of dying prematurely, the lowest level of anybody in the study. And so mm -hmm. what that tells us is how powerful our belief system is. So part of the challenge is that when we watch the news and when we get sucked into the negativity, it becomes a spiral. And it's very difficult to get out of. So 
first thing I tell people and that I practice is no news, no social media, no nothing for the first 30 minutes after you wake up because your brain is most susceptible to being emotionally hijacked mm. at that time. Same with the last 30 minutes before you go to sleep. So most people sleep with their phone next to their bed and it's horrible because even though you might not be consciously aware of it, you're still craving that dopamine hit. Your phone is like the biggest slot machine ever. But the thing I've really found so mm -hmm. powerful and my friends and family laugh at me because I used to make fun of, of this uh, is the idea of meditation. And, and I used to say, okay, guys, I am not going to sit in a full Lotus and eat, you know, eat tofu and find my inner Zen. That's ridiculous. I'm a very type A person. So every time I'm sitting there, yeah. I'm playing whack-a-mole with my thoughts. Um, I'm also an academic, so I started doing the research, yeah. and I found out that that means it's working. So I have this misconception that meditation mm -hmm. is supposed to be a very calm, peaceful experience, and it's actually not. It's very frustrating because our mind is designed to wander. So I downloaded an app to help me. Um, I use Calm, but there's Budify, Headspace, a bunch of different apps that are free. Um, and so what it does is it's actually training your brain to direct its attention where you want it to go instead of where it naturally goes. And the magic number to change your brain is seven to nine minutes a day. So I meditate every single day to sleep. I meditate anytime okay. I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. I meditate, you know, I took a walk this morning and meditated while I was walking. And so the way that looked for me was the birds were chirping and I was paying attention to them. And then I started worrying about something at work and I caught myself and I went back to listening to the birds. And then my mind went to, what are we going to have for dinner? And I went, okay, go back to the mm -hmm. birds. And like the whole time it, I, I walked for 30 minutes and every minute or even less than that, my mind wandered. That means it's working because the, the healing in your brain, the restoration of the gray matter that's damaged by stress happens when you bring yourself back. And what that does is when you are overwhelmed and you feel okay. your emotions running away from you, you can direct your energy back to being in this moment. So that is the most powerful okay. way to change your brain. Okay. Um, obviously, there are a few. Gray matter is the part of your brain that's responsible for emotional regulation and attention. And so, when we're under stress, it gets damaged, and the neurons get damaged by stress. So, things that repair it are sleep, diet, exercise, uh, meditation. Yoga is both meditation and exercise in one. So you kind of get a twofer. Uh, if I didn't say sleep, but what mm -hmm. most of us do is, you know, when I'm depressed, the last thing I want to do is go for a jog or exercise. It's, I hate it. However, after my Grammy used to say, you know what, Annie, if enough people tell you you're tired, maybe you should go lay down. You know, if enough people give you the same advice, there's probably some truth to it. <laughs> and every doctor, every therapist, That's every single person I mm -hmm. talked to told me to exercise. And I finally got to the point, you know, you get to a point where you're so low that you're willing to do anything. You're desperate enough to do anything because you just can't feel that way anymore. And so we moved into a new house. I, they had a neighborhood pool and I started swimming and I still, to this day, don't, you know, get excited about getting up in the morning and putting on my suit and going into a pool. 
but I do it anyway because it totally transformed my mood. It exercise is not just for your physical mm -hmm. body. It, it okay. changes your brain and your thought processes and it, it repairs damage. Mm -hmm. So there are so many things that mm -hmm. you can do, but just pick one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's so, um, with you and your schedule, I mean, you're extremely busy with all of your speaking engagements and consulting and so forth. And I heard you mention mm -hmm. exercise in the morning and then gratitude and then meditation. What are some other kind of non-negotiables that you I think that's a great way to look day at that it. you have yeah, to Yeah, I think get that's done. a great way to look at it. What is a non-negotiable? Like I go to sleep every I get 7 to 8 hours of sleep every night unless there's some dramatic reason why I can't. Um, but you know, I'd love to watch the last episode of Tiger King, but I know how sleep and lack of it dysregulates me. <laughs> um, so I make sure sleep is a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Social connection is also um, the best predictor of longevity, how long you'll live. Um, loneliness kills more people than high blood pressure, smoking, and obesity. So when I'm sad, the last thing I want to do is go call up a friend and have a bunch of people around me. But the research shows that if you make a connection with someone, even if it's just a text or an email or a quick call, um, that has major mood shifting capability. So every day I connect with at least one person in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then um, in terms of mm -hmm. like, you know, mm -hmm. practicing gratitude on a daily basis and you said how it kind of change it, like helps us obviously, do you think that makes us like happier and stronger then more like resilient? Cause my big thing too, is what I focus on my, my whole journey is I want people to be resilient to dealing with bipolar disorder. Yeah. Cause it's something, there are a lot of non-negotiables each day. So I guess maybe it's more, uh, what do you, what are some things? Could you talk more about re being resilient? Because I, it well, sounds like from your story, you have a lot of. That's what my research you know, has been. Uh, <laughs> some ideas about that. So, you know, resilience doesn't just mean you get back up. It means you get back up stronger. Meaning, post-traumatic growth. You've had some type of challenge or trauma or difficulty, and you learn something from it. And making meaning of difficult things in our life is uh -huh. actually a resilience building strategy. Um, the gratitude for me has been so powerful that I'm staring at it right now. I wish I could show you. I have a delicious moments board in my office and a delicious moment. I always say, you know, remember when we were kids and we had those fairy tales, like, and they lived happily ever after. And then you grow up and you have like, um, you know, you never yeah. heard of Prince or Princess Charming, you know, having an alcohol problem or a mood disorder or high cholesterol that was never in the mix. And so when reality smacks you around, because one out of every five adults and one out of every five kids struggles with a mental health issue in their lifetime, you start to doubt, what did I do wrong? Why am I not happy? 
And mm -hmm. what we haven't been taught is that happiness is not a genetic trait. It's, it's not a predisposition. It's a skill. And part of the way you achieve it is by celebrating the really great mm -hmm. moments in between, because that's where life happens. It's those little moments that we let go by because we're in a hurry for the, you know, this amazing place of happiness that just doesn't exist. And so a delicious moments board for me, every time I have a laugh, I write it down on a sticky note and put it on the board, what I laughed about. Every time I have a delicious meal that I really savored, I write it down and put it on the board or I take a picture of the plate or I'm looking at my board right now. I have a, um, I have a thank you card from the conferences for women telling me that my resilience keynote was super meaningful for them. I have a card from one of my corporate clients that said that the resilience oh. training and, and growth mindset training I did for them transformed their team. So I have thank you notes on there. I have name badges from my Ted talk. Cause it was a moment I was really proud of. I've got a picture of my best friend. I've got a napkin from a, a restaurant, a cocktail napkin, with handwriting about uh, a funny story that we talked about that I want to remember. And so it does a couple things. One, gratitude has been found to be the number one predictor of well-being and one of the strongest determinants of resilience. So people who practice gratitude, not necessarily even find things to be grateful for, but people who reflect on it, look for those things, write them down, savor them, have improved mood, better, uh, lower blood pressure, less heart disease, better sleep, improved decision-making, improved relationships. You're even perceived as more attractive. And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and what you're doing is the more you train your brain to seek out the positive, the easier it becomes to find it. Mm -hmm. So, so the, actually the, the process of, like just finding something would be enough in terms of you don't even have to find it finding gratitude from like what it. you just did during the day it. reflecting back on your day and like what are the things that mm -hmm. did not suck <laughs> i mean if you start there like i have a, a good friend who says what is right, right okay <laughs> what's one thing that's right with you right now well you know i'm, I'm sitting in a chair that's that's cool because um, I, I get tired when i stand all day or what's thing? What's one thing that's right for you right now? I'm having a great conversation with a really smart guy and an audience that I hope this benefits. Right. So it's it's these baby steps. We overestimate mm -hmm. that some of the simplest, most subtle habit changes can have dramatic results. You don't have to find anything to be grateful for. Just scanning your day, thinking about it, is enough to change your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. That's wow. That's that's like monumental for me. I'm grateful. So, my, I still have. My hair. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, that's so cool. I'm grateful. I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful. I can travel <laughs> with my dog tonight. You know, it's just it does mm -hmm. not and should not be these gigantic things. It's subtle. I have gratitude jars all over my house, and every time. I pass one I and I think about it. I write down something I'm grateful for and put it in there. It's just the practice of training your brain. And with depression, that becomes super powerful okay. because depression causes you to look through a lens of negativity. So you are training your brain and retraining your brain 
to keep finding negative mm-hmm. stuff. So if you're suffering from depression or, or bipolar and you're sitting there going, I don't have anything to be grateful for. There's nothing in my life that I'm grateful for. Recognize that you're having that thought. Say, okay, what's one thing that's right right now? One thing, right? And and you can always find one thing that is right right now. You're breathing. And for, and I, you know, there are the bipolar mm-hmm. aspect of it. And, and I don't have the, the manic side of bipolar, but Evan certainly does. And one of the things that you can do with meditation is to train your brain when you get into places of mania to take back control. Because most of us try to numb it we spend money, we stay up late, we, you know, you drink, you eat, you do whatever you can to fulfill that need, not realizing that nothing can fulfill that need, except acknowledging that the need is there. Okay. Is that what, for like mania, how, how would the process go in terms of going, if you do get manic? If you're not really like when I get manic, I don't always know exactly what's going on anyways. Cause I'm so, mm-hmm. you know, revved up. Like I don't have a lot of self-awareness. So is that some, is that something like I should look at beforehand, like try to do something to prevent it. So if I do get there, maybe the episode yeah, won't be so as intense or thing. do you have uh, any suggestions for that? Takes their power away. It doesn't mean you don't feel it anymore. It means that it puts you back in control because you're re-engaging your prefrontal cortex. And so what you can do to train your brain so that before you have the manic episode, when you're in it, you're in the tunnel and it's too late to start, you know, like when you're hyper manic, it is very difficult to go, oh, I'm going to meditate now because you probably, like you said, you probably don't even realize you're in it. But if you practice seven to nine minutes of meditation every single day, you're training your brain to direct its attention back. And as part of the meditation, if you're focusing on what is it I'm feeling and name that emotion. So I'm feeling anxiety in my stomach. Once you start getting in the habit of paying attention to what you're feeling, where you're feeling it, you start to get into self-awareness so that when a manic episode does happen, muscle memory takes over and you're able to say, oh, I'm starting to feel manic. I I feel energy in my entire body. And that's where the power is. So there's not a one size fits all. I'd be crazy Mm -hmm. and lying to tell you that. And I practice all of these things, John, I practice all of them. And I still have to bring up episodes, right? Like mood disorders are just what they Mm -hmm. are, but you hopefully decrease mm-hmm. the severity and, and the duration by mm-hmm. training your brain proactively, but it takes time. You know, it doesn't yeah. take 20 days or 60 days or 90 days to build a habit. It takes however mm-hmm. long it takes your brain to make that neural connection. And so I would say one of the biggest gifts you can give yourself is grace. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that's good advice. All right. Well, and I was wondering as well, uh, you said earlier yeah. that you were looking more into 
um, mental health advocacy and more like the national level. What sort of um, advocacy have you been doing and what so are you kind of, of long-term to do with that? And I, I, I kind of imagine life like the ocean. There are days where it's calm and beautiful and the seagulls are chirping and it's just pretty out and you're floating along on top of the water. And there are days like right now where you are sucked under and there are torrential storms and it is chaos. And when you finally get to come up out of that water and take a breath, if you don't have anything to look toward, you will end up where you are headed and it might not be where you want to go because you can get carried away very easily by the tide and current. So a lighthouse is having something to look toward, having a, a purpose, something that you're swimming toward. It can be little lighthouses, like looking forward to pizza night. It could be la big lighthouses. And so my big lighthouse is, and I feel like my legacy is to reduce the stigma of mental health and make it safe for people to talk about it. So I, like I said, I donate a portion of all my book proceeds to NAMI. I'm very involved with them. I emcee their NAMI walks. I work with their board. Um, but I also, in every single speech, wherever I am, whether it's a training session working with a senior leadership team with six people or whether it's 6,000 people in a stadium, I talk about mental health. I share our story. I share Evan's story because it makes it safe for other people to share theirs. And until we start talking, it's just the same thing you're seeing with the inequality right now. If until we start having the conversation, nothing changes. And you wouldn't be embarrassed to say I have diabetes. Yes, exactly. And it's absolutely exactly. crazy to me that somebody is shamed or feels shame for feeling sadness or for having schizophrenia or for having anxiety disorder or for any number of other mental health issues, right? There, there is no shame. And if we don't talk about it, we stay stuck in the shadows and it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. So talk about it is the, one of the best that things what, you can do and oh, not sorry. complaining, right? It's not like, Oh my gosh, this is so horrible. I feel miserable because you believe what you tell yourself. So when you tell yourself how unhappy you are, you believe yourself. And now it's not to say if you go, I'm happy and that you don't mean it at all, that your brain is going to believe you, but you can go from I'm miserable to I'm alive. I'm standing. And so when you train your brain to tell yourself a different story, you start changing your life. Most of us are just stuck in the same story. I just suffer from this. This is just who I am. That makes you a victim. It makes you helpless. To take back control, you have to start paying attention to what you're saying to yourself about yourself. So Lighthouse for me is, and I don't know exactly what form that'll take. I'm hoping, you know, I get to use my voice for good. I'm hoping that I get to speak to Congress and, and, change the way our laws are set aside. There is no reason it, it's absolutely unacceptable that somebody has to go to jail so that they can receive mental health services. It is unacceptable. And the amount of money and resources we're it spending is, on I the back end trying yeah. to fix it is ridiculous. If we would just be proactive as a nation 
and give it the time and attention it deserves. And I think we're finally getting to a place, you know, a lot of my corporate clients have been reaching out to me going, can you, can you talk about emotional well-being? Can you talk about stress management? Can you talk about navigating priorities and balance and all of, and the resilience? I think people are really starting to recognize that it's not a nicety, it's a necessity. And if we don't give our employees the foundation of basic mental wellness, then we will not get the results we want in productivity and profitability. I mean, we're losing a trillion dollars a year just from depression and anxiety alone. So at some point, right, at some point, it oh, has wow. to be That's... the focus of a conversation, not, oh, and mm-hmm. we extra when we budgeted, you know, a thousand extra dollars in case someone needs a meditation room. And that's why talking about it is so important, because if you're in the organization and you're silent, how can you get help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. That's well. Um, oh, I, have this, I thought I had this awesome question, but I guess I <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got to ask Anne this real quick. And then I was. Yeah. Um, Oh, well, I, maybe you could, did you experience shame and kind of stigma when Absolutely. you I went through the whole process of finding that you I had depression? Understand what was, I felt like I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I had all of these exciting things to look forward to in my life and I was miserable. I just, I, I remember the comment I made. I told my resident advisor at the dorm, I said, it'd be easier if I could just jump out of this window it would just make everything easier. And she said, easy isn't always the right path. It's usually not. The right path is usually the hard one. And she referred me to a psychologist on campus. And that's where I was first diagnosed. Now, in hindsight, looking back, I struggled with depression since I was a little girl, but didn't realize it. And so I I absolutely Mm. um, Mm -hmm. felt embarrassed of feeling that way until I started to really dig in and understand that it's, it's not a choice. It's, it's not a choice. Even if you have all the celebrity money, Mm -hmm. status, everything you ever wanted, you could paint your perfect life and still have depression and still have bipolar disorder. The other thing though, that I started to Mm -hmm. do that made a big difference. And I hear people say it all the time. I'm they'll say I am bipolar and you are not bipolar. You have bipolar disorder, but that is not who you are. It is not your identity. It is a part of you, but separating that out is critically important. Yeah, absolutely. That was a thank you. I preached that. So thank you. You know, you don't walk around and 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 announce yourself like I am this, right? So you, you wouldn't. You're not one thing. You're you're an amalgamation yeah. of a lot of different things, and that might be one component of it. And it sucks. And you got to give yourself some grace because you might think to yourself, "It's not fair. Why do other people have it so much easier?" Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is they might have it easier right now, but everybody goes through their share of shit. Everybody. The average person experiences five to six traumas in a lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody gets out of this lifetime unscathed. Nobody. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I know that we only have a couple minutes left, and I don't want to keep you longer than um, you're supposed to be, or you know that you have time for. Is there a way that you can give me uh, the readers' absolutely. information on how to get in touch with you, like your social media, yes, absolutely, contacts, so and like how to get where I, we can go to get your books. You can sign up for um, the notification as soon as it's available for pre-order. I'm very excited about it. It will probably be in July. The book comes out October 6th. Um, but you can also go to our website, anngradygroup.com, and sign up. We have weekly, what I call a resilience reset. It's just a quick inspirational message with a tool or strategy once a week to help you reset and and really focus on what's most important. And the other way for folks to get that, as as well as some free resources, like a resilient self-assessment, a self-care sheet, a poem that I wrote, you can text the number 555-888 and type the word strength. So it's 555-888 and the word strength and you'll be given a link to download some free resources you'll have a choice to join our community and you can always find us on social we're very active um at and grady group across all the channels okay cool and i thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i've you've well, illuminated you a lot of things with me so i appreciate truly it so much an inspiration you're making the world a better place and if you figure out what that question was you just give me a shout and i'm happy to i'm happy to answer it okay all right you too thanks so much If you found this podcast episode helpful in any way, please consider pledging financial support to me and my mission of empowering those of us living with bipolar disorder. Your pledge allows me the ability to record these episodes and provide them to you. Thank you for your consideration.